Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the Bean Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Josh Day. Our mission here at the Bean Museum is to inspire wonder and reverence for our living planet. So with this podcast, we're here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, mlbean.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. It's great yeah, to be here. Sure. It is good. We're glad you guys could make it. And I think we've got kind of an exciting, definitely interesting and perhaps controversial topic that we'll be talking about for, looks like maybe the next two episodes. We're going to be talking a little bit about the pandemic today, COVID-19. So to start, why don't we just have uh, both of our guests introduce themselves and tell a little bit about their backgrounds and their school and what they do professionally. Why don't we start with Chantel? Hi, so I am Chantel Sloan. I'm an associate professor here at Brigham Young University in the Department of Public Health. My research is in uh, respiratory health from a variety of different backgrounds, but I do a lot of work in pediatric respiratory infectious diseases and also a little bit on flu in adult populations. Uh, I teach an infectious disease prevention and control class, and I also have done uh, some work on things that are kind of respiratory infection adjacent, like air pollution and asthma. And so you're in the College of Life Sciences, right? Yes. That's where Mm -hmm. the Bean Museum resides as well, and that's where our director of the museum, Duke Rogers, is as well. Yeah, so my background is in evolutionary biology. I'm a professor of biology here at BYU, and my organism of study are rodents. And so about 12 years ago, I became interested in zoonotic diseases, and I spent a sabbatical at University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston working with an epidemiologist. My research then came from the disease vector side of things, that is, rodents that are transmitting zoonotic diseases to humans. And we've done work on various viruses, hantaviruses and arenaviruses. And I always have had an interest in disease. And so when I teach a class about mammals, we spend probably one fourth of the semester talking about various zoonotic diseases. So real fast, could you tell us what a zoonotic disease is? Of course, yeah. A zoonotic disease is a disease that humans can get that is transmitted from an animal vector or from an animal to a human. Perfect. And so a couple of those include hantavirus, like you mentioned, right? Right. And then COVID-19. That's right. And a particularly dangerous zoonotic disease is one that can be transmitted to humans and then in turn can be transmitted among or between humans. Hantavirus, rarely that happens. It's usually from the animal to the human that causes death or disease. But right, in the case of COVID-19, which is a disease, and SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, that is also obviously being transmitted among humans. At an alarming rate right now, right? Yeah, unfortunately, Utah just broke a record for number of daily cases, and we have more people hospitalized than ever before. 
Yeah, we should say that the date right now is November 6th, 2020. That number just came in. This will be published later, but that's what we're talking about right now. Okay, well, we want to talk about science and really why science is important to this process and what is science and how do we do it and why does it matter? So Chantel, why don't you tell us how the scientific process works in relation to public health? Yeah, so in public health, just to clarify what public health is first because people aren't always so sure, it's when we're impacting and studying health on a population level. So a clinician will see one person at a time. In public health, we're trying to understand why disease happens in larger groups and intervene. So things like seatbelt laws, anti-tobacco work, vaccines, things that are happening in interventions in place at a population level we're interested in. And so to do that, to understand how to intervene well, we have to use the scientific method. We have to collect data about who is getting sick, where people are getting sick, case of COVID, you know, things like transmission rates, the types of interactions that people are likely to have that lead to transmission. And in doing that, in understanding as much as we possibly can, we can then jump in and say, okay, here are the likely ways we can intervene. And a scientific question or a good scientific experimental study is one where you have a hypothesis, you're asking a question, and the answer to that is either yes or no. And either way, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. and important. So right. that's the way you want to set it up. So for example, with COVID, you might do a study where you say, do masks reduce transmission between individuals? And that's your question. And your hypothesis might be, yes, we think it does, or no, we think it doesn't. You test that. And it's important that we know. And so what people are seeing happen is the scientific process in real time and very sped up. Right. Normally, we're used to doing a lot of experiments, kind of reaching scientific consensus. Things happen over years and recommendations are made by CDC. We don't have time to go through that long, long process. What we're doing is running experiments, publishing. People are publishing their observations and they're being published a lot of times online before peer review and trying to reach consensus in real time as we're fighting the virus. And so I think it's giving people really good insight into how the scientific process works and how to look at data and understand it. But it can also be a little bit disconcerting because (laughs) we're seeing changes happen all the time, right? Where we learn more and then we have to adapt our interventions, our strategies based on what we're learning in the moment instead of what we learned two years ago. Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember them saying, no, masks don't work or don't worry about masks or we need to save them for just the Mm -hmm. first responders. And because of that kind of change, a lot of people are saying, well, science changes and we shouldn't follow it. Or they're making things up. Yeah. It's not real. So I want to come back a little bit to this topic. um, But first, Duke, could you explain for us a little bit the scientific process? So Mm -hmm. just simply, and Chantel kind of mentioned a few parts of it, but could you explain a little bit more simply or maybe broken down a little bit how science works and why it is that it works? Why it is that we can trust the scientific process? I will try. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big question. I know. So what I tell my students when we talk about the scientific method is first, at the basic level, scientists have a couple of assumptions. And the assumption is that the laws of physics apply everywhere and have in the past and will in the future. So a simple example would be water runs downhill due to gravity. We know it does. And so if we make that assumption, then that allows scientists to use 
different kinds of measurements, whether it's recording data or measuring radio waves or whatever, to answer or test hypotheses, as Chantel said. So when we do science, it can be a messy process because it's messy because humans are involved in it and humans make mistakes. And so I tend to say, trust the science and not the scientist, meaning that a paper might come out or an unpublished study that tells us one thing, but then somebody else will check up on that. And so science over time changes and we get better and better at understanding how to deal with a particular topic. And since we're on the pandemic this time, I'll give an example of that. So clinicians or people who were treating COVID-19 early on didn't have much experience with how to treat it. But as they gathered data, now we can treat it, we collectively, not me, can treat it much better. And so the death rate, all else being equal, has declined. And they're using the scientific method. Well, if, if this treatment doesn't work, uh, maybe I need to try this. Now we know, our clinicians know, that ventilators aren't the way to go. As it's a last resort, you give them oxygen therapy. And so more people are surviving. And so the other important point that I want to reiterate that Chantel made was that now we're doing, we're dealing with something that's compressed in time. And we're trying to really, really answer questions about COVID-19 quickly. But people shouldn't be upset when scientists change their approach based on data. That's what science is. We refine things, we make them better, and we answer questions in a way that helps society and helps humanity. And that's what we're trying to do overall, and that's what people working in and trying to fight this pandemic are attempting to do. Right. Yeah. Going along right with that, science is based on data. It's based on observations, right? So we make observations and ask questions, but then when we test things, we gain data points that help tell us a story. And then based on that story that we're learning from our data, we are drawing conclusions. And then in the case of maybe public health, we can make decisions on where to go, what to do. Right. The data informs us of how to pose the next questions or what to do next. Right. And the more data we have, the more accurate our conclusions can be. The more data we have, the more accurate the information is that we receive. Uh, when we have few data points, it makes it really difficult for us because there could be so many factors that are involved that we can't see. So it could be random chance that the data is telling us what we think it's telling us. Whereas the more data we have, the more we can eliminate those random smaller variables that kind of mislead our conclusions. So now let's talk about the scientific process maybe in relation to COVID-19. So Katie mentioned the mask thing, right? So we've seen changes in the science since the beginning of the pandemic, or even since it really started becoming a thing here in the United States, right? We've seen changes in what we know or changes in what we're being told. So let's talk maybe a little bit more about that. Maybe talk about a couple of specific examples of how science has developed through this seven or eight months, I guess what it's been. and Kind of where we are now. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe Chantel, uh, okay. <laughs> take yeah. a swing at that. <laughs> well, Duke brought up some really great points already. When we talk about the advancement of science around COVID, people, we, we tend to jump to the mask question because that's controversial among some groups. And one of the things we're really missing in our dialogue is how miraculous it's been to watch the improvement in treatment happen and how doctors have recognized the likely formation of blood clots for certain vulnerable groups and administering different drugs and steroids that reduce those blood clots. And it's increased survival 
dramatically, which is wonderful. There are still a lot of things we don't know and won't know for a while. There's a lot of people who have what's called this long haul COVID syndrome where they might have symptoms and effects weeks to months later. We don't know how long. We're only coming up on, I think, the one year anniversary of when this all started in Wuhan. So we don't have any knowledge of the longer term effects beyond about a year and what percentage of people will have those. But we do know that there is a chance for respiratory damage, cardiovascular damage, nervous system damage. There's some people who've had kidney issues Hmm. over time, reproductive health issues. And that's a big question right now is how long does that last? Who's going to be most impacted and in what ways from their exposure, from their infection? So the survival story is a good one so far. Not as good as we want it to be, of course. Uh, We still have a lot of people being hospitalized. There's a lot of people who are having more severe illness or long-term effects. Even people who only had mild illness initially are experiencing these long-term effects, and we're not sure why. And we're right now in early November doing a very bad job at controlling this thing. And that's true in many countries around the world. Can I add to what Chantal said? So she's right, of course, in terms of the treatment and everything else. And what I wanted to add was that because we only have known about this disease for less than a year, people who have survived it and have an immunity to it or have antibodies, we don't know how long that immunity will last. And if the immune system will make memory cells, and these are the kind of cells that if you're ever exposed to the disease again, you're ready to fight it. We don't know how good our immune systems will be at making those and how long the immunity will last. And we also don't know of these long haulers, how many are out there because some of them never have gone to the hospital. And so I wanted to say, well, you, you know, this disease is bad and there's 30% of people who get it are long haulers. We have no idea what the percentage is. It's a big proportion. Because we don't have the data. That's right, we don't have the data. And you can track people better if they were hospitalized and you watch their outcomes and then you follow up. But for people who aren't going to hospital, that's an issue. The other thing about this pandemic is that, for example, when hospitals get close to being overwhelmed or, heaven forbid, become overwhelmed with patients, then folks who need health care for other reasons either cannot go or are afraid to go. And so there's an effect both on morbidity, which is problems that aren't lethal or aren't deadly, and mortality for other reasons. So there's additive effects of this pandemic that are affecting the health and lives, literally, of people here in the United States and around the world. It feels kind of depressing to think about all of it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I will note that all of us are in a room together in person, but we all have masks on. And you can't tell we sound pretty good with, with our masks on. And we're social distancing. We're following what we should be doing. I was wondering if I could just add something, and it, it's more related to something we already talked about. But Sure, <laughs> absolutely. Um, the scientific process related to public health. There are a couple ways we might figure out things like the number of long haulers, the percentage of people who have mild symptoms and more serious symptoms. We, we know some of that. But what we're really focusing on there is there's two different types of public health studies that are, would be informative. So there's what's called a cohort study, where you take and recruit a few thousand people, and then you watch how many of them become infected with COVID. They get tested more often and 
they report their symptoms and you can follow them up and say how many of them were long haulers, you know, six months out, a year out, two years out, and keep reporting on that. Um, another form of public health study is a case control study where you take, say, a few thousand people that you know had COVID, they had a positive test, and a few thousand people where you're pretty sure they didn't, okay? And then you compare their outcomes over time and say, well, what's the likelihood of developing these kind of complications over time if you're a case or if you're a control? And so those are some of the types of studies people are starting up now. A cohort study is a little more powerful because you can say something about having followed people up and really knowing what happened every step of the way. But case control studies are also very common and very useful. So just as a way of saying, you know, how would we collect the kind of data that we would need to understand things like long hauler syndrome? Right. It's yeah. basically a sample size for the rest of the population that we're, mm -hmm. we're looking at. Okay. That makes sense. So there's a, a scientific journal called Emerging Infectious Diseases. That name may sound strange because it's, it makes it seem as though these diseases are coming from nowhere. When in fact they're not, they've been here, the virus or the bacterium or whatever it is that's causing the disease has been around. But what we recognize is that there are a couple of trends or things that are happening in the world over the last century or so that are facilitating emerging infectious diseases. And by that I mean, of course, SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-CoV-1 as it's called now, but also hantavirus and West Nile syndrome and Lassa fever and all these things. Number one is the population density in the world human population size. So when I introduced myself, I didn't say how old I was. It really doesn't matter, but I'm 66. And when I was born in 1944, there were 2.7 billion people on this planet. Today, there are 7.8 billion people. So that's 5,000 million more people. And not that we're everywhere on the globe, but the population density is such that we're moving into areas and exploiting natural resources and coming into contact with both animals and the disease pathogens themselves, which makes it more likely we will have pandemics. The point about a pandemic that needs to be driven home is that it's not if, it's when. And we're having them more frequently because of exploitation of natural resources and the higher population density so the disease can be transmitted. The other thing that's happening uh, relatively recently is rapid travel across the globe. All of us know how you know, SARS-CoV-2 started in China and then by air travel ended up everywhere else undetected in some places before it became a community spread, that is, transmitted from person to person in various places in the world. And so if there's any lesson we should learn from this is that we need to spend money monitoring for future pandemics because they are going to happen. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about the population density and the natural resources and that being a factor to it. I, I never realized that. So you mentioned a couple of other diseases. I've heard a lot of people compare COVID-19 to the flu. There's always a comparison between infection rates or between symptoms or, or things like that. A lot of people like to connect it to the flu. So I want to talk about a couple of things with that. So one is if the flu is so bad, why is it not a pandemic? Or, or what makes a pandemic a pandemic? Whereas something like the flu that's kind of been around for a long time, how is it different? And why is it maybe dangerous to compare them? You hear people comparing them and not necessarily people who know, but people compare it to the flu all the time. 
why can or can it not be compared to something like the flu? And it seems like the people that compare it to the flu are trying to downplay the severity of it. Right. Mm -hmm. We'll probably bounce back and forth mm -hmm. on this one. Jesus, sure. But I've actually seen a lot of people debating this on social media. It should be labeled a pandemic. It shouldn't be labeled a pandemic. And you know, people who aren't taking it as seriously. A pandemic is a new emerging disease that spreads to more than one continent. Okay, so there is such a thing as pandemic flus. And for example, the 1918 Spanish influenza, Spanish in quotes, influenza, <laughs> it was an H1N1, which spread worldwide and was the single worst seasonal pandemic we've ever seen was influenza. And it was a new influenza, it likely emerged in the U.S. actually, traveled around the world by transport in World War One, and killed up to 100, it really depends on whose estimates you look at, but up to about 100 million people. And so to say that COVID is no worse than the flu, for that initial reason, is dangerous. It's okay to compare it in that it's a respiratory disease. It's likely spilled over, we would say, which is the moment when a virus or bacteria moves from the animal that naturally hosts it, the reservoir species, and Duke knows lots more about this than I do, <laughs> can correct anything I'm saying, but that moment where it moves from one species to another is called spillover, and then the disease is emerging in the human population. The influenza usually spills over from bird populations, wild aquatic birds. And we have some influenzas that are circulating season after season. And then sometimes we get new ones that cause a lot more illness. And we would refer to those as pandemic flu years. Uh, a pandemic flu year is usually characterized by a more intense disease burden, oftentimes higher death rates among people who are younger and healthier. And the season will last a little bit longer than usual. So it might perpetuate through early spring, through April, rather than starting to decline around March in temperate climates. So those are some characteristics of a seasonal influenza versus a pandemic influenza, something new causing more disease and acting in an uncharacteristic way. COVID is clearly meeting all of those criteria. It's new, it's spreading rapidly, acting in an uncharacteristic way. We saw lots of cases over the warm summer months, which a lot of respiratory diseases tend to die down in temperate climates in the summer. And another thing to consider is there's pandemics that become of international concern. So public health emergencies of international concern, which is declared by the World Health Organization. And those are diseases that cause above average mortality or severe higher levels of mortality than say rhinovirus, like the common cold, you know, things that way that are new, don't know a lot about, that seem to be spreading rapidly. And it's a designation designed to get international attention quickly. And so we have pandemics, we have these pandemics that are of international concern, and we watch the characteristics and behaviors of the pandemics as they unfold to make these designations. Do you want to add anything to that, Duke? Yeah, I, I just want to say, Katie, your last comment about people saying, oh, it's no worse than the flu as a way to downplay it. I think that's the case. That's the context that I've heard it yeah. uh, referred to as. But the facts are that the case fatality rate, that is how many people die per infections for the flu that we commonly see year after year is about one-tenth of one percent. And it affects, as Chantel said, primarily young people, primarily old people. The disease COVID-19 is very different. It affects primarily older people. So people who are healthy, 
are younger. I could see why somebody would say, well, it's just like the flu, because there's very few people that have severe illness. But the best estimates of the case fatality rate are three to five to eight times higher than the flu, quote unquote. And I say estimates because the case fatality rate depends on how well you can treat it. And the case fatality rate, therefore, has declined, but it's not nearly what the flu is now. The case fatality rate for SARS-CoV-2 is not anywhere near 0.1%. That's the bottom line. And then, as we've said, you have to add on top of that the long haulers and severe disease and the fact that people that are dying from other causes because the healthcare system can't help them. Right. So if you add in all that, the mortality rate is even higher. Right. And mortality rates and hospitalization rates and number of cases are all underestimates. That's the other point that people should understand. Because in developing countries, and even some countries that have good healthcare systems, some people are dying at home of COVID-19, but they're not being recorded. Or getting sick, but we don't know about it. So it's all of these numbers are underestimates of what's really happening. Wow. Yeah, I have heard stories of people not getting tested, even though they probably have it. Right. Did that answer your questions, Josh? Yeah, I think so for the most part. Well, thanks again to Dr. Sloan and Dr. Rogers for being with us today and talking about this exciting topic. And with that, we will wrap up part one of this episode. Look for part two of this episode where we continue our discussions with Dr. Sloan and Dr. Rogers and where we're heading with the future of this pandemic. Thanks for being with us. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Josh Day. And remember to wear your masks and keep your distance.